You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Joe Hewitt. I'm the Vice President for Policy, Learning, and Strategy at the United States Institute of Peace. Welcome to this morning's event, uh, Ecological Threats to Peace. Uh, over the past two decades, maybe a little more, the peacebuilding field has built a stronger and really more nuanced understanding of the complex relationship between environmental factors on one hand and the kinds of dynamics that lead to violent conflict on the other. Uh, this morning, I'm delighted to say we have an opportunity to learn more about the Ecological Threat Register, um, the latest research product from the Institute for Economics and Peace, which is an excellent example of how our field is applying more sophisticated understandings of this relationship. There was a time when, and I'll say again, a couple decades ago, where our understandings of the relationship between changes in the environment and conflict was, was uh, I'll say linear, where we attempted to make claims like increased drought will make violent conflict more likely. Um, increased scarcity of water will make violent conflict more likely. Increased temperatures will make violent conflict more likely. And what we've learned over the years is that the relationship isn't that straightforward. The relationship is conditioned by other factors in these contexts, particularly quality of government governance, uh, the quality of the relationship between state and society, the extent to which governance is inclusive and responsive and effective, all of these characteristics condition the relationship between environment and conflict. And so if we're gonna understand anything about the relationship between environment and conflict, we really need to understand something about the sources of resilience in these places and the kinds of things that might chip away at that resilience. We, at USIP, we call those factors of fragility. So USIP is establishing a new environment portfolio on how the environment interacts with conflict dynamics that will be premised on this understanding. We're just getting started and we hope to have more to report on this soon. Um, but we're really delighted to be partnering with IEP today because the Ecological Threat Register is also recognizes that it's the interaction between ecological threats and resilience that matters. Our attention should be drawn to these places where the greatest risks for environmental challenges intersects with fragility. And this tool helps us do that in a more rigorous manner. So USIP is really delighted to partner with IEP to host this event this morning. I wanna thank Michael Collins, IEP's executive director for joining us and sharing the details of the Ecological Threat Register and I wanna thank our fantastic panelists as well for joining us. Our moderator, Tyler Beckelman, who is USIP's Director for International Partnerships. We'll introduce those panelists when we turn to that facilitated discussion. So again, thank you all very much for joining us this morning. I think this event promises to provide a really excellent discussion. And I'll now turn things over to Tyler Beckelman. Thank you. Thanks very much, Joe. It's, it's indeed a, a true pleasure to be able to join all of you and moderate this, this really timely and important discussion. Uh, before we begin, just a, a quick word of housekeeping. I would, you know, would just like to remind people that they can follow along at, at usip.org or on our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter feeds. Uh, and you can pose questions for the panelists in the comments sections of those pages. Um, so please do that and, and, and remember to stay engaged. Um, as Joe mentioned, we're, we're really delighted to have such an exceptional panel with us today. And I'll, I'll go ahead and introduce them now. Uh, first, we're joined by, by Michael Collins, the Executive Director for the Americas at the Institute for Economics and Peace. 
In this role, Michael develops partnerships with America's based governments, civil society organizations, foundations, universities, businesses, and think tanks, uh, and builds opportunities for IEP's presence and impact. Um, next, we're joined, we're, we're very honored to be joined by Sagal Abshir. Sagal is an accomplished lawyer, writer, and researcher with 20 years of experience across the private and public sectors in the US and Africa. Currently, she serves as the Senior Governance and Inclusive Politics Advisor at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where she, where she researches political and governance issues in the Horn of Africa, as well as serves as a, an associate with TrustWorks Global and a non-resident fellow with NYU's Center for International Cooperation. Um, she is also the, uh, the, the author, her recent paper, Climate Change and Security in the Horn of Africa, Can Europe Help Re Reduce the Risks, was recently published by the Climate Security Experts Network. Um, finally, we're, we're really delighted to be joined by Dr. Catherine Loon Grayson. Dr. Grayson is a policy advisor for the International Committee of the Red Cross, where she focuses on the experience of populations affected by armed conflict and violence in the context of migration, internal displacement, and, uh, and climate change. Uh, previously, Dr. Grayson worked in East and Central Africa for several years for the Danish Refugee Council, UNOCHA, and UNHCR. She was the lead author of ICRC's tremendous recent publication, When Rains Turn to Dust, Understanding and Responding to the Combined Impact of Armed Conflict and the Climate Environment Crisis on People's Lives. Thank you all so much for joining us. Um, Michael, why don't you get us started and walk us through the key findings of this year's uh, inaugural Ecological Threat Register. Excellent. Will do. Thank you very much, uh, Tyler. I'm just going to um, share my screen here. Excellent, and unless I'm mistaken, you should be seeing the first slide there. That's great. So let's jump um, straight into it. Uh, so the ecological threat register, essentially what it does is it, it compares countries' exposure to ecological threats with their underlying level of resilience, much in the way that Joe described. So the, the general objective is essentially to identify the countries that are most at risk um, so that we can focus resilience building efforts in those areas. And more broadly, of course, you know, it sort of aims to act as a, as a catalyst, if you will, for resilience building efforts more broadly. So this is the inaugural edition of the Ecological uh, Threat Register. It covers 157 countries. That's about 97% of the world's population for all of the countries where we had data available. Um, and it, it covers eight areas of ecological threats. Now that's split into two domains, essentially. One is resource scarcity. So that would be uh, food security, water stress, and population growth. And the other would be um, impacts from natural disasters. So droughts, floods, cyclones, uh, sea level rises, and temperature rises. Now, the ecological threat register projects out to 2050. So it basically provides a, a snapshot of um, the number of ecological threats that countries are going to be subject to over the next 30 years. The sort of the methodology for, for putting all of this together, for making all of these different indicators globally comparable, is developed by IEP much in line uh, with what we do for the Global Peace Index, for example. Um, but it does use publicly available and well-regarded data, which is detailed in the report. The measure of resilience that we um, that we use is IEP's positive peace framework, which I can explain in a bit more detail later on. Let's jump straight into some of the key findings for this year's report. So overall, we find that 141 countries are exposed to at least one ecological threat between now and 2050. Half of those, slightly more than half of those, which is home to about 6.4 billion people, um, will be living in countries with exposure to medium to a high um, number of ecological threats, two or more. Now, 19 of those countries with the most um, threats are home essentially to over a quarter of the world's population. Now, the important factor here is that more than half of those countries are in the 40 least peaceful countries on the global peace index. Now, broadly, we've been able to identify through the sort of the, the, the combination of the exposure to ecological threats and the underlying levels of resilience, three clusters of what we call ecological hotspots um, that are susceptible to collapse um, uh, before 2050. This includes the Sahel region from Mauritania to Somalia, the Southern African belt uh, uh, from Angola to Madagascar, and Middle East and Central Asian belt from Syria to Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Kyrgyzstan. 
Now, when taking all of these factors into account, we estimate that 1.2 billion people are at risk of displacement by 2050. Now, there are three major immigration routes that we see, which largely mimic some of the immigration that we have already seen to date. So Latin America, Latin and Central and South America to the US and Canada, um, and to Europe, Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, as well as South Asia and the Middle East. Now, the important thing to note here is that even without climate change, um, a number of these ecological threats that countries will be, are or will be subject to will likely lead to failed states given the very low levels of underlying resilience. Um, it's also important to note, and there's a dedicated section on this in the report, that only three of the countries that we determine to be most at risk are currently among the 10 largest uh, recipients of climate aid. So those are Iraq, Uganda, and Ethiopia. Um, so, you know, this is somewhat a, of a sort of a broad speculation, but it's also, um, you know, uh, a consideration as to whether we are investing in the right places and at the right times. So this is just a, a breakdown of the, the 19 countries that I mentioned before. Once again, these are all in the bottom quarter of the global peace index. You can see the names on the left-hand side. Um, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria are among the, the least five peaceful countries and currently in conflict. This is a, a mud map, which is actually available in interactive format on IEP's uh, website. It allows you to be able to see the different um, uh, threats that individual countries are subject to. A couple of things to note. Um, counting as one ecological threat has to be over a certain threshold, deemed to be uh, a threat. And uh, it's not necessarily, it's, it's not completely representative of the potential impact, because of course, the intensity of an individual ecological threat can vary. So for example, both Sierra Leone and Germany are exposed to one ecological threat, but in the case of Sierra Leone, it's that 90% of the population is, is food insecure and, and quarter of the population is, is, is essentially undernourished. In the case of Germany, it's exposure to floods. They have had severe floods in, in the last three years, but basically just reported one fatality since 2018. So this is why it becomes really important to bring in um, a country's underlying level of resilience in the overall analysis. So this is a mud map of exactly that. This is a mud map that, that cross compares uh, countries' exposure to ecological threats, the number of it, uh, um, and their underlying resilience as well. And here you can, you can kind of sort of really see the three bands that we were talking about before. You can also see a number of countries that had higher ecological threats, but, but are generally more resilient. Um, and ones that had a lower number of threats, but are less resilient and, of course, more vulnerable. Um, this is just uh, reinforcing those immigration routes that we talked about um, before. Um, you know, UNHCR currently estimates that one in five people essentially make what, would, what these routes that I'm showing here in arrows. But of course, as the majority of the countries around these areas um, become more susceptible to the um, to the uh, impact of, of future ecological threats, the more likely it is people are going to make this long-term transition. In fact, we estimate that over the next 30 years, um, uh, migration is going to regularly surpass um, immigration into, into Europe or, or the refugee crisis of, um, of 2015, for example. So in terms of population growth, um, population uh, is projected to reach 10 billion by 2050. By that same time, those 40 least peaceful countries are going to have 1.3 billion people. That's essentially going to be more than half of the world's population. 17 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, largely the ones that we saw before, are projected to double their population by 2050. Niger, for example, is expected to increase its population by 171%. Now, this is a chart um, basically sort of breaking out that population growth between countries with very high levels of peace countries with very low levels of peace, and it kind of sort of broadly speaks to, to the relationship between peace and sustainability, or also I suppose you could say unsustainability in the sense that the, what we find is the countries with the highest levels of peace and also the most well-developed actually are expecting a decrease in population of 2% as, it, as exposed to very large growth in countries with low levels of peace. With regards to water stress, 2.6 billion people uh, living countries experiencing higher extreme water stress. Um, that will more than double by 2040. 
And there's now 60% less fresh water available per person than there was in the 1960s. That rate, that 1% rate of usage is expected to continue uh, throughout the foreseeable future. Uh, developed countries currently use 10 times more water than developing countries do. So the number of water-related conflicts and violent uh, incidents um, has increased significantly over the last decade, but it should be noted that overwhelmingly um, the, the you know, water-related conflict is resolved uh, peacefully, but nonetheless, this, this increase is um, significant. And in fact, just the other day, there was news of, of Molotov uh, cocktails um, being thrown and uh, dam doors being opened uh, on the US-Mexico border due to, um, due to droughts um, and water limitations in that area. So this is a, a sort of a combined map of global undernourishment and water scarcity. There's no uh, exact measure of food security per se. So we use uh, global undernourishment or undernourishment in, in the, the countries that we look at. Um, an estimated 2 billion, country, uh, 2 billion people uh, currently face food insecurity. Uh, by 2050, that's expected to increase to 3.5 billion. Now, nearly 60% of the people in sub-Saharan Africa face food insecurity. That's the highest of any region. Um, and 65% of the population in each of the world's least peaceful and low-income countries, that's 13 countries, experience food affordability problems. Now, more specifically, and you can find a lot more about this in the report, the prevalence of food insecurity increases as countries experience uh, deteriorations in, in, um, in uh, global peace indicators uh, and domains, uh, such as uh, safety and security, internal peace, and increases in violent crime as well. I'm going to touch on natural disasters very briefly. Uh, it's more difficult to provide uh, projections for natural um, uh, disasters, so we generally avoid doing so. But um, based on historical data, floods and storms count for 72% of natural disasters. Floods alone um, uh, account for about 40%, largely in South Asia. Uh, natural disasters displaced 25 million people in 2019, very much along the average, and this is three times higher than the people displaced by armed conflict. So, we, can, you know, if we think back to those immigration routes that we talked about um, uh, before, we can understand how the impact can be significant. And overall, one billion people live in areas that combine high natural disasters with low and stagnant levels of positive peace. So Joe brought it up, and please allow me a couple of extra minutes to sort of delve into this in a tiny bit more detail, because I think it would be useful. Um, negative and positive peace are, are sort of two terms that you're likely already very familiar with, uh, especially if you've done peace building studies. Uh, negative peace is essentially the absence of violence or the fear of violence. That's something that we track in the Global Peace Index. Uh, it includes indicators such as homicide rates, battle deaths, military expenditure, the impact of terrorism, et cetera. And positive peace encompasses a much sort of broader definition of, of peace. It's essentially the answer to the question, well, what is it that uh, peaceful societies have in common? Now, IEP has arrived at this uh, quantitatively. So what we do is we cross-reference countries' GPI scores with thousands of measures of, of socioeconomic development uh, to see which correlate most uh, uh, we see which correlate most strongly with subsequent ups and downs uh, in levels of peacefulness. So this work became the positive peace framework, which is what we use to track countries' level of, of positive peace over time. But the reason that this is very relevant in this case is that we see that countries with high levels of positive peace are significantly more resilient to all forms of crisis. And this is, includes pandemics, it includes political shocks, and environmental stress as well. Um, and we have a positive peace report, which obviously goes into this in a lot more detail. So if we kind of sort of then factor in these, these two elements here, and once again, there's more information in, in the report, uh, you can actually see here the countries that are not only susceptible to high number of uh, ecological threats with regards to resource scarcity, um, but also have very low levels of positive peace as well. Um, so in this case, six face water stress, 13 face population growth, all of this, all of these more than 100% in the next 30 years, and three face um, food, uh, food security. And in terms of natural disaster hotspots, um, this is one also highlights countries with low levels of positive peace, uh, particularly vulnerable to natural disasters. Now 11 countries are in both tables, um, with an, at least six of those are going to be doubling their population in the next 30 years. So 
hopefully that um, provides a bit of uh, uh, food for thought, and I definitely look forward to breaking it out more during the discussion. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Michael, for that rich, exceptional, and indeed uh, alarming and concerning uh, presentation. Um, I'd like to turn now to, to Catherine Loon and Segal uh, to comment on, on all of that. Um, each of you has conducted important research and studied the intersection of conflict, climate change, and humanitarian risk. Uh, what elements of, of, this, of, of these projections and the issues identified by Michael ring most true with your own research? Uh, Sagal, perhaps we can uh, we can start with you. Um, thank you so much, Tyler. And um, first, let me say greetings from Nairobi, and I'm really happy to be here on this panel with all of you. Um, I do want to say um, that the views and opinions I'll be expressing today are my own and do not represent uh, my employer or any institution. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I undertook research on uh, the linkages between climate change and environmental degradation and conflict in the Horn of Africa. So a lot of what um, Michael has just been saying resonates a great deal. Um, I think uh, the, the threats that you highlighted, Michael, population growth, water stress, food insecurity, droughts, floods, I mean, all of these are present in the Horn of Africa. Um, and obviously the Horn of Africa is an area that's no stranger uh, to conflict either, whether that's on the sort of local communal level or it's sort of the civil war uh, level, or it's even sort of bigger than that where we've got um, this particular region of course has the two newest countries in, in the continent, Eritrea and Sudan that, that were created out of civil war. So um, I think, uh, what I was looking at, you know, the, the idea that all of these pressures are already there and climate change is basically exacerbating all of this. And the climate change that's being experienced in this region sort of practically is um, the scientists agree that everything's getting much hotter, um, but they, they can't really agree whether the region is getting wetter or drier overall, but it's certainly um, getting the rainfalls getting a lot more unpredictable, as you can see with some of the, the floods um, happening. Um, I, I, I most resonate with, with your focus on the concept of resilience, um, because I think a lot of the studies sort of are looking, are, are, are looking as, as um, Joe said, are quite linear, going from ecological threat to um, the actual conflict. But I think this focus on resilience and positive peace is a really important one. Um, I think um, when it comes to the Horn of Africa, um, a lot of the examples of, of this kind of uh, linkage from, con from, from sort of ecological linkage to climate focus is a lot, it, it is around the local levels. And so you'll hear about people who um, uh, have been driven into the arms of extremist groups, for example, because of their livelihoods being affected or displacement, whether that happens uh, within a country of people moving from different parts, whether it's pastoralists or whether they're moving sort of across borders. But I just wanted to bring your attention. Um, and I think that, that the linkages are always complex. And I think we're gonna talk a bit later about how human intervention can make them worse or better. Um, but I just wanted to bring your, your, your attention to two examples, um, which um, I'd say are transnational. And I think it's, it's interesting because I think your, your register talks a lot about um, within nations, but of how these, these linkages can be quite, um, uh, sort of unexpected, or rather. Uh, the first one is um, around the current um, uh, locust invasion or the locust situation in the Horn of Africa. Um, and this was sort of unusually wet weather in the Arabian Peninsula in Somalia and the cyclones in 2018-19 encouraged about above average locust breeding. This wasn't unusual, but it was above average. But I think that the, the um, Yemen civil war, which has had tremendous uh, destruction, also damaged the um, usually robust locust response system, which meant that these locusts, which would normally have been sort of culled to some extent in Yemen, have found their way to the Horn of Africa in these sort of massive numbers and like able to breed in ways that they weren't able to. This of course is leading to a massive food security crisis in the region and decimated the farmlands. Um, the UN uh, uh, estimates that about 25 million people will be affected. So 
I bring up that example to sort of show an unusual linkage between conflict and, and, and climate, because I think sometimes we think about, um, you know, again, we think about specifically like a drought and people moving. And the second one, I think, which is very, is on everyone's minds, is the um, ongoing negotiations between Ethiopia, Sudan, and um, Egypt about the Nile and the sharing of Nile water which uh, as we all know is would always have been a pretty fraught and difficult negotiation as all transboundary water negotiations are i think that the the um climate what, what was it they're saying is climate change is making it that much more difficult because the water levels are that much more harder to predict the rain you know is affecting it dramatically of course now we've got high levels of rains but i think everyone's concerned about drought um and of course the risk on the on 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 of this not being gotten right would be to lead to another ecological disaster in Egypt, where if the Nile goes below a certain level, you'll get salination of the farmlands and the potential of sort of some sort of a, a, a military response of course is, is on everyone's minds. And then the third example I just wanted to give about how some of these linkages, um, uh, the risks we show up in the horn, I think is, is, is the risk of sort of second or third order effects where the political and economic responses to climate change in other parts of the world might affect the horn. So for example, you've got Gulf states that might be investing in massive bread baskets in Ethiopia and Sudan um, that could have obviously a knock-on effect or acquisitions of large forests as part of these international uh, climate offsetting mechanisms that can also lead to conflicts where local communities are forced out of forest habitats and things like that. So these are just, I just wanted to give sort of some initial examples of how I was sort of thinking about these connections, but I really, I really do appreciate um, an index of this kind and the, and the breadth of it for us to sort of go deeper into analyzing some of these issues. I'll stop there. Thanks, Sagal. That's wonderful. And we have, uh, I think, a lot to chew on from those remarks. And, uh, you know, I'd like now to turn to Catherine Loon and sort of offer the same question and, uh, and hear your perspective on the report and how it uh, aligns with your own research in this topic. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for the invitation. That is a fascinating start to the discussion. So I'm really pleased to be there. Um, I think in listening to Michael, a, a few points. To me, the starting point of ecological threats is super interesting because there's quite a great focus on climate change, whereas what we see is an exacerbation of existing environmental degradation, ecological degradation by climate change. And so looking into those, what you've called ecological threats is super interesting in that regard, because I mean, in most cases, what we are seeing is existing um, threats that are being exacerbated by climate change, but not necessarily created by climate change. And in that regard, I, I find that super interesting as an approach. Um, in looking at your mapping, when you were showing ecological threats and resilience, what was really quite fascinating to me, and I would love to do that exercise, is when we looked at the humanitarian consequences of climate change, we overlapped a map of um, climate vulnerabilities. So where are the countries that are considered the most climate vulnerable and the least ready to adapt to a changing climate with a map of countries that we qualify as countries in a situation of conflict. And there we have, I mean, a clear disproportionate representation of countries in situations of conflict and those that are amongst the most vulnerable. So we ended up with, um, 12 countries out of 20 that would be among the most vulnerable to a changing climate and are in a situation of conflict. Now, I could not, I don't have the details of your map, but in looking at it, my sense is we probably end up with a, uh, an overlap of many of these countries there. And so to me, that's interesting in the sense that we know that, I mean, to me there, the defining factor is what you, you looked into under resilience where we would probably speak of how conflicts are impacting institutions, weakening them, weakening societies, and that affects profoundly people's resilience and community resilience, making them much more vulnerable to shocks. And so to me, these elements are interacting, and this is why you end up with such a, a representation, because there I would fully agree with the idea that we don't have a linear 
relationship between climate change and conflict. And therefore, when we see this overlap, this overlap is not telling us there is a correlation between climate change and conflict. It's not that climate change is causing conflict. It is that climate change is leading to, it, that conflict is leading to very particular or inducing very particular vulnerabilities. So limits the resilience of our communities. Now to that, I think I would like to comment on the fact that to some extent to us, that overlap is not so much a conclusion, but the starting point of a reflection on how do we then help these communities become much more resilient to various shocks. And that includes shocks related to climate, but also to environmental degradation. So to us, it's really the starting point of a reflection, that, re that recognition that these communities are particularly impacted by environmental degradation and by um, climate risks. The other element I wanted to um, comment on is um, on the fact that, um, well, on one thing you said, Sagal, and that connected to what you were considering, uh, Michael, in terms of more regional um, implications. To us, one thing that is extremely interesting and requires further work, at least from our side, in terms of better understanding, is what you've called knock-on effects, Sagal. But I mean, when we carried out the, we did a, a fairly in-depth research looking at the humanitarian consequences of climate change in a number of countries. And the, we, we carried out a part of the work in the Central African Republic. And there, what we were seeing is changes in transhumance patterns that are induced among other things. So it's not the sole factor by climate change, environmental degradation, and armed conflict in the Sahel and the Lake Chad region. So there we were really looking into how changes on, in one part of the continent might lead to changes hundreds of kilometers away. And to us, I mean, this we need to better understand because it does require that in some cases we adapt the way we work on these threats because we might need to be providing support in the Central African Republic, but we might also need to be working in the Sahel to address some of the tensions that we are seeing in the Central African Republic. So there to me, there's a great deal of complexity in how these elements influence one another. And I mean, we have similar examples with uh, water sharing. If we looked at Iraq, there you really have questions related to how do we manage um, water and how do we share water within regions and what are the consequences of an overexploitation of resources or environmental degradation in neighboring countries when in, we are looking into the, the southern tip of Iraq that relies on water coming from um, neighboring countries. So to us there, there was really an, inter uh, an intersection that's um, interesting to um, unpack if we want to be able to respond adequately. The two very short points, I uh, other short points I wanted to flag is on immigration. I mean, I think it's important to bear in mind that in most cases, what we're looking into is internal movement. So cross-border movements will remain less important than internal movements. And that means that significant work needs to be done at an internal level to assist states in looking into how do we help populations relocating in a manner that makes sense and so on and so forth. So this, I think, really needs to be kept in mind because we know that displacement tends to be internal before being cross-border. And on that, when you were mentioning the, the levels of displacement induced by disasters and by conflict, one element we've been trying to um, convey is the fact that we need to bring these two types of displacement together because quite, I mean, they don't, ha they don't happen in isolation. I mean, if we look at Somalia, is displacement induced by drought or is displacement induced by the fact that institutions are, have been weakened by decades of instability and conflict that therefore means that they're not able to support populations in the face of a drought. Because I mean, where I come from, a drought will not lead to displacement. So there, there I, I think we need to be able to build in greater complexity into the equation because a disaster may displace communities, but usually not massively unless you have other factors that are also coming into play. The, the very last element I wanted to comment on is on the fact that, so you flag that uh, the countries that are the most vulnerable and the less resilient to um, ecological threats 
often are not those that are receiving the greatest support in terms of climate aid. And this to us connects very much with, so we're seeing the same when it comes to climate um, risks and conflict uh, affected communities. And one of the points that we're constantly making is we need to find ways to ensure that climate finance does reach those communities enduring conflict. But we know that there are a number of clear obstacles there. I mean, you need institutions that are able to channel money to design uh, comprehensive programs and so on. So to us there, there's really something that needs to be unlocked if we want to ensure that adequate responses are going to be provided for these communities. But again, thank you very much. That was a super interesting presentation. And those were, were super interesting remarks. Thank you, Catherine Loon. I, I, I want to take that your, your last point maybe a little bit further as we think about the intersection between climate and conflict and, and different sort of adaptation strategies. Uh, you know, a lot of this comes down to issues of, of governance and, and maybe turn, to turn back to Segal to speak a little bit more, you identified a number of areas where, you know, sort of governments, you know, are, are on the hook to put in place different adaptation strategies to deal with these long-term trends. What, what, what have you seen that, that works and, and where are many of the, the, the sort of institutions that are most affected by these trends, uh, you know, falling down? Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think definitely um, when we're talking about a situation of, um, like we talk about in the horn of scarcity and limited resources, um, it's, it's really the institution of governance that is going to sort of help bring the, the societies together and figure out how this is going to be shared in a way that is uh, peaceful. Um, the governance in this region, of course, is, is uh, different levels but like we've got a, quite a few governments that are quite fragile coming out of wars or like in Somalia dealing with violent extremism or like in Sudan you know very very um, uh, transitions let's say going through transitions so I think one of the the first points I want to make is that it's very they tend to be responding to crises or responding to the the, the outcome rather than having the focus and the attention and sometimes the resources to deal with prevention. Um, whether that's sort of prevention of sort of the shorter term, like, like disaster management preparations or even the more longer term adaptation that's required. Um, related to that is sometimes that in the, in the efforts to, to do some of the long-term adaptation, it isn't always done in the most conflict sensitive manner. So there is a bit of sort of knee jerk um, um, type of things where um, like I'd mentioned, communities being moved out of forests because it's like, oh, this is a water table, we need to protect it. But like, it, it, it can be very hard to um, uh, get it right, let's say. So I'm talking about sort of governance that's well-meaning, but that isn't getting it right. I do think there are situations when there's actual poor governance. And so um, one of the, the sort of important links pathways, let's say from environmental damage to, to sort of uh, um, conflict is cases where the conflict or the, 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 a low level communal or resource conflict can actually get politicized or manipulated and get caught up in larger political um, issues, let's say. And in that case, you've got sort of uh, human, human action or human intervention or politics that's exacerbating the situation. I think the example, um, the, the, the best example I saw of this in the literature was um, essentially a, a water conflict between a pastoral community in Sudan and a farming community where, you know, there would be this kind of, the, 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 the herders would move into the, into the farming community when there were low rains, but a combination of sort of very poor or failed rains made the, 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 the farming village less willing to share the water. And then this essentially got laid over this was the conflict between North and South Sudan, essentially. And these two communities where a conflict that had started out as a water conflict ended up as essentially a, a civil war. Um, so that's the case where sort of poor governance is, is making things worse. And I think one of the important things that needs to be done is for um, all of us to get a better understanding of how some of these low intensity conflicts, because there will be more of them as, you know, ecological threats and, and climate change uh, worsens, how to make sure they don't um, escalate. Um, in terms of sort of actual interventions, I think, you know, 
we've talked quite a bit about the importance of protecting uh, the resilience or strengthening the resilience of vulnerable communities. Um, I think um, improved natural resource management and so helping people do better around um, resolving th these issues. I think strengthening dispute resolution in a lot of cases in, in, in places like the Horn, it isn't the state that is, is playing that role. It's either local or communal or traditional systems that are helping people resolve these issues, especially in a context where you've got pastoral, a large pastoral existence. So to the extent that these dispute resolution mechanisms are under pressure or, or, or overstrained, I think supporting those can be a way of strengthening resilience. Again, we're, it's, it, there's resilience to the actual ecological threat, but then there's like trying to make sure that that strain doesn't break out into conflict. Um, I think bigger interventions, I mean, that, that I've seen um, this on the peace and security side, I think there's our efforts to integrate it into like the regional and the continental security architecture, whether that's EGAD um, or the African Union. Um, I'll draw attention specifically to EGAD's early warning mechanism, which um, is very good. It, it, um, it's very good at identifying and de-escalating cross-border conflicts, which again are, are related to some of these pastoral movements. Um, they've started um, inputting climate uh, data into this so that they'll have a better insight into whether there might be some sort of ecological related um, problem. Um, yeah, I think I'd say sort of two takeaways, two takeaways on that. I think the one thing to keep in mind um, when it comes to this work is trying to um, work, sort of the peace building work around this is inherently political. So I think it's important that peace builders and analysts get a better understanding and comprehension of the um, climate risks and ecological threats. And I think this is something that this register will be really helpful. I think we tend to sort of peace building, you tend to go in with like these frameworks of, oh, these are the people that live here, these are their relations, and this is the tribal stuff. But I think understanding the climate and ecological aspects is gonna be very important. Um, and then I think, um, especially in this in this region, as this climate conflict nexus gets more attention, it's going to be important that the the the, the first responders are um, people who work in peace building and mediation and adaptation rather than security actors. I'll stop there. Thanks very much. That's excellent, um, Catherine Loon. Maybe pose a similar question to you to unpack perhaps a little bit more of about what, what resilience to, 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 climate, to the climate and conflict nexus uh, looks like in, in practice. So, because I work for the ACRC and we work in conflict situations and situations of violence, I focus on these situations because I mean, to some extent, I'd like to say strong institutions, but we tend to be working in a place where strong inclusive governance may not be what qualifies the what describes best the, the situation so what we're looking into when it comes to helping people be more resilient in the face of what we consider to be combined risks or threats we are both looking at how do you help people anticipate and reduce the, the risks that they're exposed to. And there, I would say that this is an area where we clearly need to be able to strengthen the way we work, because at least in the humanitarian world, we tend to be in a very reactive mode, which means that we will respond to something that has happened. We're less good at putting in place systems that would reduce the risk and ensure that people's homes are not going to be destroyed by the next storm or that their livelihoods are not going to be um, destroyed by the, the next storm. So there to me, there's really an element of becoming better at everything that relates to early warning systems to longer term resilience building. But I'd add to that, that as much as we recognize that it's important, we recognize that it's a major challenge because I mean, resilience building in the absence of institutions that are strong in the absence of access to basic services, think of energy, for instance, that is quite key when we're looking into how do we help people diversify their sources of income so they're less vulnerable to the next storm. 
these elements are often missing in the areas where we are um, we're working. So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to be providing a straightforward answer and say, this is how we address this. In reality, what we're looking into, and I mean, we're looking at what are the gradual steps that can be taken to help build that resilience. And if I, I'll give you an example from what we saw in the Central African Republic. When we carried out the fieldwork in the Central African Republic, there was 100,000 people that had been displaced by the, the recent floods with thousands of homes destroyed and so on. What happened is people literally had to flee their homes in the middle of the night after heavy rains had been flooding fields and swelling rivers for days. So to us, there were two things there. If you're looking at building resilience in the long run, well, you should be working to ensure that people do not settle in flood zones in the first place. Now, if you're looking at how do we reduce people's exposure to immediate risks, well, there should be an early warning system. You could know that if you have days of rains and if you're seeing that rivers are becoming um, are swelling, it's very likely that there will be inundation. So all that action to reduce the risks that people are exposed to should be taking place in a much more consistent manner. So there I'm not dealing with all the measures that can be taken to help people adapt to a changing climate, but we are certainly dealing with some of the measures to at least reduce risks. Because I mean, climate adaptation, which is what we would be speaking about, can happen with small actions. So changing the type of seeds that people are using. But in most cases, we're actually speaking of long-term ambitious measures that we'll be looking into. How do you transform a whole agricultural system? How do you handle new diseases in certain areas? And these actions in situations of conflict tend to be limited. And I mean, Sagal was mentioning the fact that she was referring to governance in situations of uh, conflict. and speaking of the fact that there might be other priorities than resilience building and climate adaptation. And this is very clear. I mean, security priorities will come first. So what we're really looking into is what are the measures that can be taken in the meantime to help people be stronger in the face of risks, knowing that it's not, we cannot wait for fragility or conflicts to be addressed because we know that these may last for an extended period of time. So that's a long answer that uh, should be more straightforward than that. But I guess my sh the, the response would be, what are the gradual steps that we can take to help people build their resilience? And we really need to shift the balance between a focus on reactive responses these remain absolutely essential, but we need to do more when it comes to anticipatory responses. And we as humanitarian actors, but that goes way beyond humanitarian actors. It's development actors, it's the private sector, it's the academic community that's looking into how do we do better. So, I mean, there's really a question there of joining forces because it's clear that we are not going to respond to these risks alone as humanitarian actors. Sorry for the convoluted response. No, that's wonderful. I, I, I appreciate it. And I think it's, it's, it's spot on. Um, being cognizant of time, I think we could, we could you know, continue to unpack these issues for, for another couple of hours. But uh, being mindful of people's time, I wanted to, to turn to a, a question from, uh, from one of the audience members, which gets at an issue which I wanted to touch anyway, which was to dig a little bit deeper on the issue of, of migration and, and refugees. And Catherine Loon, you noted, you know, the importance of, of, you know, seeing internal displacement and sort of refugees, you know, as, as inherently linked and part and parcel of, of the same trends and challenges. But you know, certainly, you know, Michael, in your presentation, you you highlighted the risk of you know rather you know quite substantial and significant refugee flows that will dwarf, you know, in many ways what we're seeing from this most intractable conflicts taking place around the world now. Um, and the question actually comes from uh, a former uh, member of, of Parliament. I'm not sure where, but they asked, you know, how can we how do how can we get developed countries to accept the phenomena of climate refugees? Um, they have sort of tried to introduce this concept, but but met huge resistance. And I think this gets to you know the the sort of demographic changes that we're going to be seeing, and how the sort of broader set of international actors in the international community should be should be thinking about these issues and, and uh, addressing different responses. 
I don't know, Michael, do you want to start or would you, you know, prefer that, that we sort of throw that to, to Sabal or Captain Lynn? No, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, I can, I can, I think a large amount of it is obviously trying to get those headlines out there, which is in many ways what the ecological threat register is, is trying to do. I mean, uh, you know, more often than not, and especially, you know, being based here in the US, we always see uh, this as something external. Obviously, uh, Europe has ha has been uh, impacted much more than that. And, and you know, we can definitely use that as sort of a, as an example uh, with, with, you know, what is the potential sort of societal impact of, of mass migration? So in the case of, of Europe, you know, an increasing hostility to, to foreigners, um, you know, increasing civil unrest, new political parties, um, and, and, and elements related to, to that as well. And, you know, part of the work that we're trying to do is precisely to kind of sort of underlie some of the challenges um, that countries face as receivers um, of, of this. And, you know, we're focusing on these international flows, but like Segal um, and, and uh, Catherine both said, a large amount of this displacement is also going to be uh, internal or, or, uh, or into, into board, mostly internal. Um, so a lot of it will come down to the uh, to the government. I think additional emphasis can definitely be be played on on how this will affect a country's natural uh, national interests uh, abroad, um, both in terms of um, you know security risk, but also in terms of foreign investment, for example. Thanks very much. So maybe turn to you, Segal, to to speak to this a little bit. You made a number of recommendations of steps that that Europe can take. Uh, in light of these crises, I mean, facing, you know, building those out a little bit to the sort of broader set of international actors, what do you see as the, as some of the priorities for the international community writ large can take to, uh, to address some of these emerging trends? Um, I think that um, certainly, uh, I think that the, the issue of climate in general is gaining a lot more focus um, internationally, and I think I think that 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 most uh, sort of developed nations are are becoming very aware. And I think develop, I mean, the world. Um, I think I've written about sort of the EU um, and how they're thinking about uh, intervening in this climate conflict nexus. Um, and and I sort of uh, I think we've touched on on, on many of them, include you know helping to strengthen uh, the resilience of vulnerable populations, um, helping to uh, strengthen dispute resolution and, and, and natural resource management. I think um, uh, supporting sort of peace and security architectures that can sort of take a more uh, early sort of preventative action. Um, I think that this question, and I'm not an expert, but I'm going to bring up something that's very sensitive, I think. <laughs> um, this, the whole issue around the sort of global climate negotiations and the sort of equity around climate change and the fact that many of the countries I've probably on the list that, that are at risk today are not carbon emitters, nor do they have manufacturing um, sort of large industry. I think this conversation is a very vibrant and ongoing one um, around, uh, you know, how do we do this as a world? I mean, I think, uh, to, you know, to be honest, I think within countries, within the EU, there's probably a lot of tension around which countries should pay for what. And I think when you take this and you sort of writ large on the global level and we put climate change into it, I think it's very, very challenging too. Um, so I wonder if this climate refugee question is, is sort of related to this, this broader conversation around sort of equity and responsibility and all of this. So I, I'll just say that. But I'm, I do wanna say one thing about sort of the, the IDP and um, sort of migration issue. Um, really interesting World Bank study that was done in 2018 that was looking at internal um, climate change migration. And they were looking at sort of relating it to this, this, this other massive trend of urbanization in Africa. Um, and uh, one of the things that I took away from it, which I found fascinating, was they were they did a case study specifically, for example, on Ethiopia, which is a, you know, a country that's that's very very rapidly urbanizing. And one of the interesting things that they found is that Addis Ababa, where we would expect as a capital city that that's going to be a, a, a sort of climate in migration hotspot, 
they found that by 2050, I forget the actual figure, but it's actually going, because of the, 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 the environment and the water availability and everything, it's actually going to be a, a climate migration out, it's an out migration spot, which basically for urban planners, and, and, and as Catherine was saying, this, isn't, this is gonna take everyone's effort. But if you think of that from an urban planning perspective, that means we need to start thinking about not just sort of developing the urban um, environment of Addis Ababa, but secondary and maybe tertiary cities in that country. And so if, you're, if we're trying to absorb the IDPs within the countries, we have to start thinking a bit more creatively because that might help manage the sort of bigger out-migration issue. Does that make sense? I'll stop there. That that makes absolute sense, and I wanted to to give Catherine Loon the, the the option to come on to, to come into this as well, specifically around questions of urban resilience, but also anything you want to say about the broader international dynamics uh, and equity issues that I think very rightly were were raised by Sadal. So I'd actually like to come back to the migration question for a second because I think, I mean, I. When it comes to migration, I, I mean, I stress the fact that most displacement or migration is internal. This is where we see the greatest levels of movement. Then most of it is happening within a region. So I, I do think we need to be careful with projections that are saying that the US or Europe are going to be receiving large numbers of migrants. Because the reality is that when the situation is difficult in Somalia, it's Kenya. It's Ethiopia, it's Djibouti that are receiving large numbers of people. And this will continue to be the case, in part because moving requires means. Most people don't have that much means. So I, I really think we need to be careful with projections that may suggest that there are large flows of people going into Europe or the US. Because what is clear is that at an internal level, states have to be able to deal with movements in their population. And Sagal's example of urban growth that will need to be managed is extremely important because this is what we're speaking about in most cases, the management of movements inside countries that require that we adjust availability of public services in certain places and so on, and then movements across borders. But I mean, most often to neighboring countries that may not have a great capacity to receive migrants. So to me, this is really where the challenge lies. And this is not to diminish the importance of further migratory routes, but I think we really need to bear in mind that this is the level at which it is happening. It's often at a national and sub-regional level and hardly ever at an intercontinental uh, level. And so this I think is important because we run into a risk, I think, with the migration question that is the, the securitization of the of the issue and I mean I, I, there I would really beg for an approach that looks at this through a human security lens so goes beyond the hard security risks and is also looking at what are the human implications in terms of human security that captures food uh, access to food access to water and so on and so forth because I really think that if we want to be looking into responses that will truly help communities face growing risks, the response, of course, hard security risks need to be addressed, but the response has to be holistic. I mean, we have to be looking at water security, food security, access to essential services and so on and so forth, because otherwise we may be able to contain issues, but this is not going to help communities adapt to a, to a changing climate. So I, uh, these are the few points I, I wanted to add to the, to the discussion on people's uh, movements related to climate change and fragility, I guess. Well, I appreciate that. Um, one final question from the audience, if, if, if you wouldn't mind indulging us. Um, and it's an interesting one. I, I, I'm curious, maybe we can start with Michael on this, but um, how is, in, in what ways are transnational corporate investment and speculation, um, especially the extent to which, you know, the sort of different models of economic recovery, if I'm understanding the question right, encourage that, taken into account when considering the climate conflict nexus? 
So, I mean, I think that, that historically we can definitely uh, make uh, a case, even if we kind of sort of don't think about formal businesses, but we think about the exploitation of natural resources uh, in, in other countries. We can, of course, make a very uh, strong case for how that has kind of sort of negatively affected the security, uh, security situation in, in many countries for, for decades, if not hundreds of years, you know, having having uh, spent a lot of time in Haiti specifically, uh, you know, you kind of sort of still see very much the the uh, the um, the impact of, of colonialism and, and kind of sort of uh, sugar plantations essentially uh, there, the impact that that, that has had on the um, ecology, which it continues to have, and then of course the implications for, for human security. But thinking about it sort of more formally in terms of, of um, businesses, I mean, you know, generally sort of a sound business environment is something that we consider one of these pillars of um, positive peace. So that is that is definitely a critical part of, of any uh, sovereign sovereign nation with regards to its ability to uh, withstand a crisis. If you look at sort of COVID-19 and the ability of the, the um, uh, businesses to be able to sort of step up and change it, change what they're doing to be able to provide essential services of, of all kind, that's definitely something that can expand across uh, borders and should. Um, and and, and, and it can focus very much around opportunities as well. So, um, you know, with all of the, the critical needs arising um, and the importance of, uh, you know, uh, technology, uh, innovate, innovate, innovative forms of, uh, of food production, um, being able to find ways of alleviating water stress, these are all going to be main focus priorities internationally. So we think that there could be a lot of potential there for, for business. What, what we would generally say um, and just just uh, feeding off off some of Catherine's uh, comments about large scale interventions versus small ones, we tend to see when we look at the positive peace framework that the countries that improve most sustainably in terms of peacefulness but also resilience do so by making small progressive improvements in a variety of different domains. Um, it's not by overinvestment in a particular area, such as you know um, making making the country a lot more open to foreign investment without due consideration for the impact that we could have. Segal also shared a number of examples related to to that as well. So 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 there's a lot of opportunity there, but once again, be wary of doing actually too much in that area and the potential implications it could have. Great, thanks thanks very much, Michael. That's, that's appreciated. Um, I, we're running up against time, and but I wanted to give all three of you maybe the the opportunity to, to sort of leave us with your final parting thoughts. This has been an immensely rich discussion. We've touched a number of key areas, but uh, uh, perhaps Sagal, we can start with you. And and what do you want to leave us with after this conversation? Um, I would I would want to leave you with maybe the, the idea that um, the climate change or ecological threats do not have to lead to violent conflict and I think that a lot can be done and I think that human action of course we can always exacerbate things but we can certainly try to make things better um, and then I think the second point is is you know I think we need to think regionally um, I'm talking about the Horn of Africa but I think like Catherine said I don't know if borders necessarily like hold some of these risks. I don't think like something happening here means the result will happen, will, will, will be felt in that country. So to think regionally. Um, and then the final thing is, is again, um, I wanna uh, emphasize that the, the response, I think to all of this shouldn't be again, a bit something like Catherine said, less, less of a hard security or security focused response and more mediation, peace building, um, other types of interventions to try to allay these risks. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Catherine Moon, over to you. So I'd first like to second um, Sagal's recommendations. I would very much agree with those, um, with those avenues. Um, I think I'd add to that that the analytical efforts, and I mean, such as what, um, as those that Michael has been presenting, need to continue. These are absolutely essential, and we need to find ways to test approaches and help communities while these are happening. It's imperfect. We would wish to have a full understanding before we start developing responses, but this is not going to happen. So we really need to be able to lead those efforts side by side. 
And I mean, to us, it's extremely clear that we need to find ways to help communities that are living in fragile um, states or in conflict-affected states, because otherwise they're really left alone on the front lines of climate change and environmental degradation. And this is of extreme concern. So I would really beg for finding ways that where we can work in such environments that are extremely challenging. But we need to be able to build on what is there on test, uh, and start testing approaches to see what is working so we help building that resilience in the longer run. Thank you very much. Michael, maybe any parting thoughts from your end? Yeah, uh, just just a couple of going back very quickly to 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 governance and and just kind of sort of you know reinforcing that that yes you know we're well functioning government which is another one of these sort of pillars of, of positive peace is absolutely uh, uh, critical and that we sort of reverberates um, very strongly throughout the positive peace uh, framework you know we're sort of with with um, a governance or, or countries sort of caught in the violence trap, it's very easy to be able to see this weakening of institutions that creates conflict that then weakens institutions further. And basically what it means is that any individual government then is forced to spend uh, time working on the emergency, essentially on one critical issue, which is essentially what the international has led the international community to focus on security, right? But that that it, that does not mean that any of the, the other issues are no less um, important, of course, and, and they should be focused on. So, um, you know, in terms of, of, of how this can be solved, um, I believe it was Catherine noted diversification. Um, you know, there's a tendency to focus on, on the theme of the day, but understanding other ways of generating resilience is absolutely uh, critical. Simple things like uh, improving the free flow of information within a country can improve resilience in boundless ways as well. Um, and then uh, just to, to return slightly to previous comments about making small progressive interventions in a variety of different ways, micro and macro. Um, and, to, and, um, and then in terms of kind of sort of pure speculation as, as to, to how this could be done, something along the, on the lines of establishing an investment ratio uh, of a government and the activities that it plans to undertake and limiting the amount of intervention that it plans in any particular domain to the benefit of another one that may not have an immediate security implication, but no, no, nonetheless has a long-term impact. I think with regards to country analysis, um, we perhaps can get sort of caught, uh, too caught up looking for, for a magic uh, bullet. So embracing complexity, embracing correlation can be, can be uh, helpful. And basically, recommendation for any individual countries, what do you need to do to be ready for the widest array of threats um, possible? And, and how can you essentially home grow what you need? Um, you know, not only in terms of food and water, of course, but uh, people, products, and services. Uh, not to the detriment of, of multilateral cooperation, of course, that sort of remains a, a, mean, a mean to an end. But, um, and, you know, learning a lot from current crises such as COVID-19. Well, I, I will not even dare to summarize the richness of this conversation. Um, I would simply encourage people to continue to follow this work uh, in the work of all of our panelists um, as, uh, as we continue to, to, to think about these issues and, and build the case. I will say just, you know, to end, just a, a note of tremendous thanks to, uh, to, to all of our panelists, Seagal, Catherine Loon. Uh, and, to, and to Michael and to IEP writ large for, for this incredible product. Um, you know, I will say that we are you know, already walking down a very dangerous path, um, but I think you know, I leave everybody with, with Seagal's sentiments that climate change doesn't have to equal violent conflict and that the, you know, I think you've heard, we've heard a number of uh, suggestions today of the ways to that, that intervention now taking a preventive approach and building in those strongest those strong principles of, of peace building uh, can hopefully help uh, forestall a more disastrous uh, humanitarian situation and, and, uh, and issues therein. So thank you all for joining us today. Continue to follow us on USIP.org and I, along with IEP and uh, ICRC and Seagal's ongoing work. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts.